The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. The title is Saved by Grace, and I'm going to pray now for the reading and preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave us your son. In love, you predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And we have this great salvation, yet apart from your intervention, apart from the illuminating work of your spirit in the eyes of our hearts, we cannot grasp this truth rightly and to appreciate this truth as we ought. So we need your help. So please move in our midst, speak to us, address us as your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Most of you probably have been to a funeral at least uh, once in your life by this point. Uh, and there's always a sense of sobriety about it, right? You, you feel that sense of finality. It's over. That person is gone, right? And, and it's perhaps to uh, kind of mask the harsh realities of death. Uh, nowadays, uh, some of the funeral homes, the modern funeral practices, uh, they try to kind of cover things up to make things look a little nicer, right? So sometimes when you go to a funeral, they have the viewing of the deceased. And when you walk by the corpse, of course, the corpse is not decaying there, right? I mean, they, they put some makeup on, it, on, on the corpse. They put the best clothes on her, right? And so it looks like there's, there's an appearance of life there, right? She looks just as she had looked perhaps before she died. But there is no life. She's dead, the, there's no more oxygen getting pumped into, into her body, right? And, and rigor mortis has kicked in, so her body's now stiff, 
Her brain cells are dead, so she can't think for herself. She can't lift a finger, literally. And she's completely disposed to the will of others. She's dead. That's what it means to be dead. In the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul addresses the spiritual condition of people outside of Christ. But unlike our modern funeral homes, he does nothing to lessen the hard reality of our condition. And that's because not, he doesn't want to be pessimistic, but he understands that we must first understand the grave condition that we are in as sinners separated from God for us to truly be able to appreciate God's gracious intervention in saving us. And this is important to realize from the get-go because people, I mean, even non-Christians and people you meet will freely admit that they were at one point thoughtless or careless or foolish or irresponsible. But none of these admissions go far enough because all of us at one point were not merely fools, but we are foes of God, enemies of God. And all of us at point were not just ill, but dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's what Paul wants us to know. And he's not trying to be negative or depressing, but he wants to, us to paint this grim picture of our hopeless condition so that we can understand God's merciful action. And that's kind of the outline I'm going to follow to, to describe, to teach the main point of this passage, which is that God saves hopeless sinners to display his sovereign grace. That's the main point of Paul, main burden that Paul has in this passage too, that God saves hopeless sinners to display his sovereign grace. And I'll first talk about our hopeless condition in verses 1 to 3, and God's merciful action in verses 4 to 6, and then God's ultimate purpose in verses 7 to 10. So let's turn first to verses 1 to 3, which tell us about our hopeless condition. Verse 1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Trespass is a transgression of a boundary that, that God placed on us. Uh, he's placed boundaries for us, for our life, to guide us so that we can live uh, in his will and, and to delight in him and to enjoy the good creation he has given us, but we transgress that boundary. Sin, likewise, describes missing the mark. God is a standard he has set for us, commands he has given us, but we miss that mark, right? It's the typical of, of the kind of the prototypical, really, uh, example of our transgression and sin, of course, is uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God told them, enjoy all of this, uh, all that I've created, enjoy this, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they doubt God's good intentions for them, and they pridefully take things into their own hands and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Romans 6, 23 teaches us that there's only one lawful consequence to sin, and that is death. It says the wages of sin is death. That's why it says in verse 1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in verses 2 to 3, Paul tells us what our spiritual death looks like with three descriptive phrases. First, we were following the course of this world. Second, we were following the prince of the power of the air. And then third, we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Let's take a closer look at each of these. The first one is in verse 2. It says that we were once following the course of this world. Uh, to translate them more literally, it says following the, the age of this world. Uh, and it refers to the various non-Christian ideologies, values, right? Philosophies, systems, fashions, and pressures that characterize our world. 
And there are only two courses we can follow, right? We are either following the course of God or you're following the course of this world. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, you're either with me or you're against me. And, and that's the reality. So, and, and a Christian follows a different way, however. We don't follow the course of this world. And in fact, our values and our priorities, the course that we follow, the way of God, is so radically different from the course of this world. It's almost as if we don't belong to this age. It's as if we're from another world. It says, but the world, we all once were following the course of this world. What are some examples of following the course of this world, right? I mean, of course, the pervasive materialism of our age. People really don't pay attention to God and his word. Instead, they're following the course of this world and are blind to the eternal spiritual realities. We're we fixate easily on the temporal realities, the physical realities, and nowadays even virtual realities, but we don't, we're not concerned with the, the eternal spiritual realities. And because of that, what we see often in people around us is that they care more about their physical appearance than their spiritual character. We find people who care more about their material possessions of accumulating more and more than the spiritual treasures. They're more concerned with the opinions of their virtual friends whom they don't even see than the judgment of their creator. That's an example of following the course of this world. Another dominant worldview, of course, of this world is, is atheism or godlessness. There's no place for the authority of God's timeless word. Instead, we become our independent uh, lords over our own lives and we live as if there are no ultimate spiritual truths and virtues that we need to abide by. The world is I mean, divisive. Right? People devalue people that have been created in the image of God. Instead, they rely on things like class, race, to divide the world, to classify the world. These are all examples of following the course of this world, and we all once lived in this way. The second way in which we were dead in our trespasses and sins is that we were, as it says in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean, right? I mean, the power of the air. It sounds a little bit uh, uh, mysterious, like some, from some sci-fi movie or something like that. But what does it mean to be the prince of the air? And the next verse uh, gives a clue. It says the prince of the power of the air is because it's, 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 it's a spirit, right? And the word spirit in Greek can also be translated wind, right? So the power of the, the prince of the power of the air, right? The wind is in the air. So it's referring to that airy realm of the spirits. In the Jewish worldview, they believe that spirits occupied that airy realm above the earth. And so that's what Paul is referring to. And this uh, prince is Satan, the accuser. And he is called a prince. He's called a ruler because even though he can only act within the bounds of God's ultimate sovereignty, nevertheless, he does exercise a kind of rule here uh, on earth. And that's why the Gospel of John primarily describes Satan as the ruler of this world. He does that multiple times throughout the Gospel. And so the forces of evil, right, the forces are, of, the spiritual forces of evil are in the air, so to speak. And that also shows us, it communicates to us that their effect on our present world is pervasive. Yet it's often overlooked precisely because these spiritual forces are Invisible. It's the airy realm. Right? It's kind of like carbon monoxide. Right? 
It's especially dangerous because it's colorless and odorless and tasteless as a gas. So it can poison us without our knowledge and we don't even know that we are dying, yet it is killing us. In the same way, these spirits, because they are invisible, they occupy the airy realm, we don't see their pervasive effect. Well, we do see their effect, but we don't see them. And so we don't recognize that threat. And, and this is so uh, important for us to recognize, especially as we wage spiritual warfare, right, as, as believers, as people who have been armed by the Spirit of God. Because it's, uh, if, if we see examples of um, you know, human trafficking around the world, right? Uh, there's some in New Hampshire. We've seen some in Cambridge where we're from. And rightly, we are indignant to see, you know, to see people abducted and enslaved. Uh, and and, and, and that's, that's true, but... This, that's precisely what Satan is doing as the prince of the power of the air. He's abducting people and he's keeping people bound in bondage. He's enslaving people, even people, some of them who have, whom God chose from before the foundation of the world, that they should live with him and to know him and to experience his salvation. There are people whom God chose who are still in Satan's bondage. Satan's doing this right under our nose, yet we don't do anything about it and we're not indignant about it simply because we don't see it. And Paul is trying to tell us to know, to remind us. The prince of the power of the air is alive and well. And much of the world is following this prince. The third way in which we were dead in our trespasses and sins is that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, as it says in verse 3. And Paul is not condemning all passions and desires of the of the body and the mind, but he's referring to everything within us that is inclined toward evil, inclined toward rebellion against God. When, when God judged the world with the flood in Genesis 8-5, he, he observed before unleashing his judgment that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it's these evil intentions of the thoughts of our hearts that are in view when Paul says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, when he says that, he does, not, doesn't mean that every single person in the world is an axe murderer, right? I mean, he's saying that the effect of sin is pervasive and that it taints everything that we do. So in, that, in the sense that we are not living for him and doing all that we do for God's glory, everything is... Uh, it's following the passions of, of the, our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Galatians 5, 19 to 20 gives us some examples, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And people of the world sometimes describe indulging in these things as, you know, living it up, right? Liberating it's freedom. But that can't be further from the truth. It's not unlike uh, rock climbing uh, while unroped. You guys heard of, heard of free soloing, right? It's becoming really popular nowadays where peop- rock climbers, really the best rock climbers in the world, they will unrope themselves and climb uh, really, really high. And, and they s- describe it as exhilarating, liberating. There's no constraints. You're, you're going up. Uh, but the, the one uh, uh, kind of truth about this that they have to recognize is that if you're climbing anywhere above 30 feet and you fall, you're dead. Uh, which is why 
free soloing accounts for a disproportionate number of climbing fatalities in the world and, and the number of world-class best climbers whose lives have been cl claimed from free soloing is ever growing. Sure, there's a sensation of being free and being alive, but in reality, it leads to death for many. So wearing a harness, being tied to a rope, and using an anchor might feel like inhibitions. It's these safety mechanisms that enable climbers truly to climb freely and to enjoy it without having to worry about losing their life. Similarly, indulging the passions of our flesh may offer a sensation of freedom and life, but there's no true life there. It's a sign of death. And though some people survive a free solo climb, no one survives sin. Has a 100% fatality rate. And all those who indulge their passions of the flesh are dead in the trespasses and sins. And this is how we all once lived. That's what it says. Verse 3, look at it. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all once lived this way, and because of that, we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of humankind. And the wrath of God is not this you know, capricious, petty anger of the pagan gods. It's his, God's resolute commitment to his holiness, to his righteousness, to his justice, and it's his warranted and justified expression of wrath towards deserving sinners. That's, what wrath, that's the wrath that he's talking about here. And all of us at one point were dead in our trespasses and some of us may still be. And what is required then is not a little partial renovation, but a complete new birth. As J.C. Ryle, a 19th century pastor, uh, puts it, he puts it this way, quote, it is not a little mending and alteration, a little cleansing and purifying, a little painting and patching, a little turning over a new leaf and putting on a new exterior that is wanted. It is the bringing in of something altogether new, the planting within us of a new nature, a new being, a new principle, a new mind. This alone and nothing less than this will ever meet the necessities of man's soul. We need not merely a new skin, but a new heart. Old things must pass away and all things must become new. Man must be born again, born from above, born of God. A natural birth is no more necessary to the life of the body than is the spiritual birth to the life of the soul. End quote. If you are not a Christian with us today, uh, or if you're watching this perhaps on live stream, you have a tremendous opportunity today to be born again from death to life. And you can't just because, you can't despise your need for salvation by pointing to weak, hypocritical Christians. Sure, there are many Christians who may be less accomplished than you, even less moral than you. But there is an unsurpassable gap between the Christian and the non-Christian because the one is alive and the other is dead. Compare the magnificent sculpture of Michelangelo, the David. It's magnificent, it's beautiful. 
It's really an example of her perfected human physique. But that sculpture can't hold a candle to a sickly baby in a neonatal intensive care unit. Why? Because that sculpture is dead. But that child is alive. And every child of God, no matter how weak, no matter how faltering, is far more precious to God, their father, because they're alive. But how can that which is dead be brought to life? What can those of us who are dead in our trespasses and sins do? And to be short and blunt, nothing. There's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins if you're not a believer. The dead tell no tales. The dead can't save themselves. The dead can't even lift a finger to save themselves. And no matter, uh, you know, it, and this is, this is important for us to recognize because Paul Tripp, a Christian author, you know, describes people who try to put on good works, try to put on salvation, try to earn salvation on their own right this way. He says, it's like putting on the, it's like putting on, you know, stapling apples onto a dead tree, he says. Sure, it might look great for a little bit, but there's no life to sustain that fruit. So it's just going to wither and fall. We cannot save ourselves. I'm doing my very best this evening to crush your very last hopes. And I hope you are following me. (laughs) Because it's only when our hope is utterly crushed that we can truly appreciate and recognize God's merciful action. And Paul does give us uh, here a glimpse of hope, a glimmer of hope, because he uses the word once in verses 2 to 3. And you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked. The sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. But that means there are some people here and there are some people who are not dead in their trespasses and sins. And the description of this passage of their hopeless condition is a description of their past and not of their present. And it's because these people are people who are in Christ. God saves hopeless sinners to display his sovereign grace. And that brings us to point number two, God's merciful action. Verse four begins, but God, but God, right? That has to be the most glorious use of that adversative conjunction in all of literature, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God injects hope into our hopeless condition. And notice it doesn't say, but we, doesn't say, but I, it doesn't say, but we pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps. It doesn't say we worked really hard and performed a lot of good works to earn our salvation. It says we, it doesn't say that. It says, but God saves hopeless sinners. Read the rest of verses four to five with me. But God being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And notice the jarring contrast between verse 3 and verse 4, right? Verse 3 just told, about, told us about God's wrath. Now in verse 4, he tells us about God's mercy. And this is not a contradiction because it's simultaneously true. Because God resolutely opposes sinners, opposes those who are rebelling against him. And he must, out of his holiness and justice, punish sin. Yet at the same time, you know, not unlike a parent who simultaneously loves 
his or her child, but still disciplines his or her child because in order to meet, to root out the wickedness in them, uh, God the Father still is, is merciful toward us and he creates a way for our redemption. And as he does that, God's not impoverished or stingy in his mercy. He says he is rich in mercy. And it doesn't say that God is petty or meager in his love. It says he has great love for us. And both of those words in, in the Old Testament, they, they communicate the concept of God's covenant love, his steadfast love toward us, love that we could never deserve or hope to earn, but that's something that God freely bestows, bestows on us out of his mercy. That's the love. That's the mercy. This is incredibly good news. And it's out of his love that God made us alive together with Christ. And that last phrase gives us a clue as to how exactly God saves us with Christ. Uh, Paul repeats this three times in verses five to six. He made us alive together with Christ, right? Second, God raised us up with him and verse and three God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus God made us alive with him he raised us up with him and he seated us with him and these three ways of describing our union with him it's, it corresponds to, to, to the three uh, ways in which we were formerly dead in our trespasses and sins we were following the, the course of this world we we're following the passions of our flesh and we were following the prince of the power of the air and by by uniting us with Christ, making us alive with him, and raising us up with him, and seating us with him, he deals with all three of these ways in which we were dead. And let me show you what I mean by that. Here, and look at verse 5. It says, God made us alive together with Christ. That means God made us participants of the death of Christ. We died with him. We died to sin. We died to our old self. And we were made alive with him. That means we are partakers of his death and resurrection right through his death on the cross christ paid the penalty of our sins as bill was saying during the during this time of singing right this is the substitutionary atonement god's righteousness is given to us our sin is is taken on by christ in his death on the cross so and because of that we are freed from the penalty and the power of sin and that's what paul describes elsewhere in galatians 5 24 to 25 those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit the passions of our flesh have been dealt with in our death and resurrection with christ They've been crucified with Christ. That means we have a, made a clean break from sin. That's not who we are any longer. It's, it's as radical as a new birth. That self that followed, the course, that followed the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, is now dead. We've made a radical break from the past. We've been made alive together with Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking and objecting in your own minds, well, that sounds wonderful, but that doesn't seem to describe my life, right? Because I still struggle with sin all the time. I don't know about you. The passions of my flesh seem to be alive and well. What's going on here? Is what God's saying here, what Paul, through Paul's writing here is untrue? 
Well, perhaps some of you guys are feeling guilty from, from a prolonged struggle with besetting sins. But you can think of it this way, right? When you uh, dig up weeds from your garden, right? for a little while, there's still going to be life in that uprooted weed. It's still going to be flexible, still has some moisture in it, still has color. But for all intents and purposes, that weed is dead, isn't it? Because it's uprooted. There's nothing giving it life. And it's just a matter of time that that weed dries up. And it's blown into the wind like chaff. In the same way for us, Christ has made a decisive, put a decisive end to sin. And he's decisively defeated the passions of our flesh. So that yes, you might struggle with sin now. Yes, there is some indwelling sin left that's lingering still. But that sin has been uprooted. There's nothing giving it life. It's dead. And so if you are discouraged this evening, and if you are uh, wrestling with sin in your life, or maybe you're plagued by guilt, and I want to reassure you, and I want to comfort you, even though you might feel like you're dead in your trespasses and sins, the truth, the reality is that you are now alive in Jesus Christ. That's the true description of your state now. And this is, so that's how Christ deals with the passions of our flesh. But he doesn't stop there. He also deals with our world. Because we were following the course of this world. And he says in verse 6 that God raised us up with Christ. And being raised with Christ, the resurrection, this is tied to our ascension. Colossians 3.1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Because we have been raised to new life, raised above the course of this world, we should not be defined by the course of this world. We should not be defined by this age, but by the age to come. That means our priorities, that means our values are different because we live with the kingdom mindset. That means we live with a heavenly mindset. That's what we live for. We live with hope. This world tells us that wealth will bring us happiness. Right? That we should accumulate more so that we could spend more, so that we could be more happy. But because we have been raised with Christ above this world, we no longer lay up for ourselves just treasures on earth. But we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. This world tells us you are what you eat. Enjoy yourselves. Eat healthy food. Look good. Attract the other sex. But 1 Corinthians 6.13 tells us food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Sure, eating well, exercising, these are all good things. But these physical concerns can never be the defining and driving force behind a Christian's life. Our hope is not in this world. It's in the world to come. Because we've been raised with Christ above the course of this world. 
And not only does Christ save us from following the course of this world, Christ also deals once and for all with the prince of the power of the air. And he does this by making us, his people, participants in his session. That's the technical way of referring to Christ being seated at the right hand of God the Father. It refers to his reign. The fact that Christ is now reigning with God Almighty. And it says we are now seated with him in the heavenly places now. Sure, that will be consummated later, but that's the reality now. We reign with Jesus in a real way. And that means because we reign with Jesus who has been raised above all authority and rule and power, we no longer do Satan's bidding. He no longer has any claim over our lives. He no longer rules us. We only have one ruler, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he dealt with all three of the ways in which we were dead in our trespasses, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in that, Jesus is a complete Savior. But what's in it for him? Why does Christ save us in this way? And that brings us to our final point, God's ultimate purpose. But before I discuss God's ultimate purpose, let me first address the penultimate purpose, the second to last, right? It's not the ultimate purpose. It's the purpose that's secondary, subordinate to that. It says in verses, it, in verses 1 to 2, it, we were told that we were all once walked in trespasses and sins. But then now it says in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the contrast, the repetition of the word walk. He's intentionally drawing a contrast between how we formerly walked and how we now should walk, which is in doing good works And because we have been recreated, God created us for good works. That means for the Christian, if your death to sin and life to Christ is not evidenced in the way you now live. That means if... As a Christian, your heavenly citizenship, rather than a worldly citizenship, if that's not evidenced in the way you now live, and if your transfer from the dominion of darkness to the dominion, the kingdom of light, is not evidenced in the way you now live, that means you're dead in trespasses and sins. The good news of Jesus Christ, Christ's saving work, it motivates It doesn't obviate Christian obedience and good works. The absence of sanctification is an evidence of the absence of God's grace. And for that reason, the result, the end result is not just less sanctification. It's eternal damnation. So if you consider yourself a Christian, take heed to your soul this evening. Consider your ways. The justifying grace of God is also the sanctifying grace of God. The same grace that saves us also sustains us. So don't forget this penultimate purpose of salvation. And the prepositions are important here, right? It doesn't say that we were saved by good works. It says we're saved by grace through faith. But it does say here that we were saved for good works, That's one of the purposes, very purpose for which God saved us. That's what we were created to do. But that's only his penultimate purpose. 
And God's ultimate purpose for saving us is this. As I mentioned to you at the beginning of the sermon, God saves hopeless sinners to display his sovereign grace. We see this clearly in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice the concessive statement in verse 5, right? It's, it's not that we deserve this or we were kind of, we were doing things, you know, in, in a way that pleased them. That's why he said, oh, okay, you're doing better now, so I'm going to save you. No, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were going headlong in the other direction, when we were rebelling against him and, and sinning to his face, that's when God intervened to save us. And why did he do that? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, Paul said, "Guy, by grace you have been saved. And now in verse 8, Paul repeats that statement and explains what he means. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift, and this is a concept that we all understand, right? Christmas is coming up, right? Imagine you get a Christmas present, it's the best one you could, ever hope, could have ever hoped for. And then that following week, you got a piece of mail and it was a bill for the gift you got. No, that's not a gift, right? A gift is freely given. There's no payment required. It's not a wage that is earned. It's a gift that is given. That's what it means that we're saved by grace. He says, it's the gift of God. And that's the, the doctrine, the truth that, that the Protestant Reformation recaptured. By grace alone, we are saved. Not grace and works, not grace and another thing. By grace alone. And we have to be careful here because we can't be misled into thinking that it's our faith that saves us. Sometimes we carelessly say, oh, we're saved by faith. That's not true. We are not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And let me explain what I mean by that. Right? Let's say that uh, there's, you apply to uh, a really prestigious law firm. Let's say, let's, um, and then when you're applying for this law firm, you know full well that you are completely unqualified. Let's say you just barely, barely passed the bar exam, right? Uh, and it's you have, and you uh, have no business applying to this top firm. But let's add to that picture the fact that your father is the president of the law firm that makes all the hiring decisions. Well, now that changes the story, doesn't it? Well, of course you get in, right? But it would be erroneous to conclude that it's your application that got you in. Sure, your application was an instrument. It was a means by which your, you were inducted. Your application was accepted. Sure, your application was a means for that. But it's not the basis on which you were accepted into that law firm. The basis for your acceptance was that your father is the president. Do you see the difference here? We are not saved by faith. We're saved by grace. God's grace toward us. His loving kindness toward us. That's the basis for our salvation. Not our own faith. 
Faith is simply the instrument by which we say, no, I can't save myself, so God, save me. That's faith. And even faith is preceded by God's grace because if it weren't for the assurances of the Father's love and mercy toward us, we would not have the courage to believe that there's anything else in store for us but eternal wrath. So then, as those who are once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now have been made alive in Jesus Christ by God's grace, it's our appropriate response. It's really only appropriate response to display God's sovereign grace. And that is the ultimate reason for God's saving activity, right? It's, that, it's because the, it, he was rich in mercy, it says in verse 4. He says he was great love for us in verse 4. And the ultimate reason for saving us is his mercy and his love toward us and his ultimate ultimate purpose in saving us is that we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. The reason why God saves us by grace through faith is because it shows that God was completely responsible for our salvation from the beginning to the end. And that means he alone deserves the glory. Let's go back to that analogy that I used earlier of, of this guy who applied to this prestigious law firm. Imagine now that this guy actually graduated from Harvard Law School. He was a valedictorian. He aced the bar exam. And now let's say, imagine that he gets into the firm. Why did he get into the firm? Of course, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he deserved to get in. He got, on, got into the law firm on the basis of his own merit. Then who gets the glory? Of course, he does, not his father. And that's the point. Because God saved us not when we were deserving or worthy, not when we earned it, not when we were meritorious, but when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's when God saved us, and that shows that God alone deserves all the glory because we didn't deserve any of it. There's thousands, there's millions of people in the world right now perishing without saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we here, this group, this church, this remnant, we're sitting here in this room. There's no good reason apart from God's grace that we should be sitting here. There's no good reason. None of us deserve it better than any of those people, but it's God's grace toward us. His love, his mercy, that's why we're sitting here. And I hope you get this because this has huge implications for the way you live. Church historian and theologian Richard Lovelace writes that many Christians below the surface of their lives, this is a quote, are guilt-ridden and insecure. And they draw the assurance of their acceptance with God from their sincerity their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. When we do this, when we live this way, when we rely on our own sincerity, our own strength of faith, our own past experience, our own religious performance, our own relative infrequency of sin in our lives, and that's where we place our confidence for salvation, then we're robbing God of his glory. Because that's not why he saved us. 
He saved us because of his mercy and his love. We're refusing by living in that way to give God his rightful glory. We're saying to ourselves, God saved me because my heart was in the right place. We're saying God saved me and not you because I have more faith than you. God saved me because I was living a more righteous than that person down the street was. Then we're not giving God the glory that is due to him, but we're taking glory, robbing him of glory, giving it to ourselves, saying, oh, it's because I deserved it better than that person. No, stop robbing God of his glory. Instead, say this. Instead, say, there's no reason why I should be saved. I am no better than the next person down the street. But God saved me because he's merciful, because he loved me. Doesn't that bring great glory to him? That's why. That's the ultimate purpose for why he saved us. That might seem too good to be true for some of you. And let me uh, close with this story that I hope brings it home for you. My professor at uh, seminary, uh, Haddon Robinson, he was once the president of Denver Seminary. Uh, and he told me the story uh, when he was raising funds for uh, his seminary, which is one of the pr- primary jobs of a president. And uh, he approached this businessman uh, and with a financial need for a $20,000 phone system for the seminary. And the businessman just asked him, you know, straight up, how much would you like me to give? And Robinson, he didn't want to be presumptuous, so he asked, well, could you give maybe $1,000? It's not a small amount, I mean, to, to, so to speak, but, but he, was, he knew this businessman was very wealthy. But the, so the businessman wrote out the check, and as he handed it over to President Robinson, he said, you insulted me. What? What do you mean I insulted you? I mean, could, would you care to explain? Uh, and the businessman continued, you asked me for $1,000, but you needed $20,000. Either, there's two possibilities. Either you felt that I wasn't able to give you that much money, in which case you underestimated my financial status. Or you knew that I had the money, but worse, you believed that I wouldn't give it, in which case you insulted my generosity. Do you think God's grace for you is too good to be true? Does it seem too costly for you to receive that freely? If you refuse it, if you refuse to believe that God saves hopeless sinners to display his sovereign grace, then you're doubting that God is rich in mercy, that he has great love towards you. Or you're you're doubting his immeasurably rich kindness toward us. So stop relying on the merits of your good works today and throw yourself completely, helplessly into his gracious arms. And when you do that, then you will become more freshly aware and reminded of God's mercy and grace and because of that, more grateful and joyful and secure in his love. And God himself will be more glorified in your life because you are displaying his sovereign grace, his love and mercy. Let's pray together. God, we need your help to live in a way that as John the Baptist did, simply pointing to Jesus and saying, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, there's nothing in us, there's nothing about us that made us worthy of that great salvation. So we acknowledge your grace today. We praise your glorious grace. May your grace, the river mouth from which your salvation flows, tend all the way to the ocean of your glory. Receive all the glory, God. Triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.